Hi, I'm a higher ed CMO, and I have a confession to make. I actually really enjoy crisis communications and issues management. But sometimes when you're in the middle of a reputational issue, it's easy to forget that storytelling can play an important role in crafting a narrative that resonates with your audience. That's why I'm so happy to be talking to my guest today, Katie Angstad from CRA Admired Leadership, about how you can use storytelling to craft compelling narratives that help you achieve the objectives of your organization. sure to follow me on Twitter at at Jamie Hunt IMC. That's J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C for more opportunities to connect. Hey guys, Jamie here. I am giving you a little bit of a warning that my audio doesn't have quite as good a quality as it normally does in this episode. Uh, My husband and I moved to a new location and getting all set up. I accidentally entered the studio without checking to make sure that the right microphone was selected. But I think the content is so amazing and Katie's audio sounds great. So I hope you'll stick through it and learn everything that she shares about storytelling and building compelling narratives. I'm so happy to be here with Katie Angstead, who is a partner at CRA Admired Leadership. Hey, Katie, how are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. We're going to be talking a little bit about storytelling and building compelling narratives. And Katie and I worked together when I was at a previous institution, and I probably can't go into details because of the type of work that we're doing was relatively confidential, but Katie is just an absolute expert on strategic communications and leadership communications. So we're so thrilled to have her today. Katie, do you want to tell us a little bit about your career and your journey and what you do at CRA Admired Leadership? Sure. Happy to. Um, Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. I always love listening to your confessions. So CRA Admired Leadership is a relatively small boutique management consulting firm. I'm, as you mentioned, in the strategic communication practice, but really our firm was founded. We've been around for over almost 40 years. And we have an expertise around working with organizations to really elevate them. And this is relatively broad, but elevate them in lots of ways in how we help leaders communicate to their most important constituencies as we think about inside of an organization. So often, especially with marketing, you think about how we communicate outside of an organization, but we often focus on when we're communicating really strategic things that are happening in an organization, whether it's a new strategy that's getting rolled out, a merger, an acquisition, some sort of large-scale change. How do we really help and equip leaders to communicate that effectively to the organization in a way that helps uh, employees? 
employees or associates really understand and align their behavior to whatever the direction is that the organization is intending to go. Um, and so that's really where I spend a lot of my time. But we also have uh, a lot of work that we do related to research and leadership development, and we have a coaching practice. And so a lot of the work that we do, I like to talk about it in a way of how we elevate organizations to be better not in how they just show up in the work that they do today to day, but like for leaders and how do we help leaders get better inside organizations. So that's a little bit of a glimpse of some of the work that we do and how we came to be. That's, that's awesome. I have really enjoyed working with Katie and her team. They have been so thoughtful and helpful and always um, calm, even in the face of some stressful situations. So I always appreciate that about Katie. Um, recently, you did a two-day workshop on um, storytelling and building compelling narratives. In that, we, we kind of talk about how leaders are using storytelling to drive change and achieve organizational outcomes. What makes storytelling so powerful? That is a great question. So I think so often inside organizations, what you'll come to find, whether it's in an academic institution or a corporate organization, is when there is a change that is happening. Uh, there tends to be, here's what typically happens. So a leadership team decides that they want to make a change and they will communicate that change. And in that moment, there's usually a lot of activity that happens to announce whatever the change might be. And, and there's not a lot of context typically that is shared with the organization around the why. Mm. And so it leaves readers or audiences feeling like, okay, well, I, I, fundamentally understand it, but I don't really see the connection. And the reason that happens is because leaders have what we call the curse of knowledge, which essentially means that they are involved in hundreds, if not thousands of conversations from week to week and month to month, where they have all the context around why we're making this decision, how is it working, what does this mean? And so then when they announce something, they actually presume that the audience knows more than they actually do. Right. Mm. So this curse of knowledge is this cognitive bias, if you will, around how they think about it. And so if we take that idea of communicating a change and say, well, what's the story we actually want to tell around this change? And if you think about kind of a narrative arc and the most important parts of a story, you have a protagonist and an antagonist and a setting and rising action and climax and resolution. You have all of these really important parts. If you think about being, an, being able to paint that picture and how you tell a story and how you're communicating a change, you're ultimately giving the organization more context to say, okay, now I understand. I have the situation, the context, the background, kind of what are the things that led to the decision? And so that's one part of it. So the additional context in a story is really helpful. But as humans, we are storytelling animals, right? There's even a book that is related to that. Stories are really sense-making tools for people to really understand what is happening, why is it happening, how is it relevant for me? And so instead of saying, let's communicate the change, it's what's the story we're trying to tell around this change to help people have deeper meaning for why and what it really means for them. So do you have an example of a story that a company might tell or an organization might tell to convey information to an internal audience? So when it comes to organizational storytelling, it's a, there's a little bit of a nuance because I think so often everyone has a different frame of context when they hear a story, right? What's the story or storytelling or narrative? And often, you know, organizational stories aren't the type of creative storytelling that I think so many of us often think about. So as we think about an example of a story we might tell, what we're looking for is really what is the frame with which 
of the story we want to tell. So as an example, one of the words that we hear a lot in this, a lot of stories that are happening inside organizations right now is around the word transformation. Mm. We're telling a story of transformation, meaning we're making these changes because we want to transform how we do business or how we serve students or, or whatever the case might be. And so you hear a lot of stories that are really centered or oriented around transformation. You, you hear stories around evolution, how we're developing and evolving and getting stronger and better and faster. You might hear stories also about a transition around how we might be on a journey from going from one place to another, but there's an, you know, as you think about this idea of a transition or a journey, there's an end state in mind. So there's what we found in our firm, and we've done a lot of research around this, is that there's essentially nine um, ways in which we can tell stories inside an organization. So when we go into an organization, someone says to us, can you help us tell this story? When we look at the stories they're telling already, because whether we like it or not, if you look across how organizations and institutions communicate, there's a lot of existing stories. What we find is the stories that they're telling are actually um, a lot of the different stories. So instead of saying, this is a story of evolution, they're telling a story that's about evolution and transformation and a transition all in one. Mm -hmm. And it kind of creates confusion. So a lot of the work that we will do with organizations is to help them really refine and enhance the story so it creates clarity for people rather than oftentimes what happens, it can create confusion because people are actually left feeling like, well, what's really happening? Are we transforming or is this about getting stronger? What, what is that? What is it actually that we're doing? Um, so a lot of the work that we do actually is about language and words and how we use words effectively to create clarity. I just heard somebody describe um, marketing in a way of kind of refining that story so that um, the analogy that they use was if you throw 16 ping pong balls at somebody, the odds that they catch one of them are pretty low. But if you throw one ping pong ball at them, the odds that they catch it will be much higher. Is that sort of the kind, kind of way you're Absolutely. thinking about storytelling? Absolutely. A lot of it, when we think about storytelling and what we find is the stories that leaders want to tell often are using language and words that are really compelling for leaders but not necessarily what's most compelling for the audience and what they need to hear. And the transformation is a great example. So leaders love this idea of we're transforming. There's something about that word that leaders love and really attach to. But if you look at the research and what as employees and, and people inside an organization hear that, the people who are doing the work day to day, frontline, working with students, you know, working in the plants, whatever the case may be, that word doesn't resonate. They hear that word and it actually triggers responses of, layoffs, efficiency, what does this mean mm. for me? And so, you know, it's really about how do we reframe things in a way that is going to allow people to really hear it and not bounce off of them and not create what we call competing frames. Because that's essentially the different stories that you tell can, can create this competition and for what people should be paying attention to. And so I love what you just described around this ping pong effect, which is if you pick one frame and you stick with it and you're consistent not with across different leaders and how they tell that story, people are going to be more inclined to actually, one, hear it, and two, believe it, right? Mm. Because if I hear one leader telling one story and another leader telling a different story, I'm going to feel a lot less, um, I'm going to see that leadership team perhaps as not being aligned and credible. And we all know that one of the most important things hey that all, a leadership team I hope team you're enjoying this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed Senior. I want to take a moment to thank my friends at MindPower who are making season two of this Involify podcast possible. MindPower is a full-service marketing and branding firm celebrating nearly 30 years of needle-moving, thought-provoking, research-fueled creative and strategy. MindPower is woman-founded and owned 
WBENC certified, nationally recognized, and serves the social sector, higher education, healthcare, nonprofits, and more. The MindPower team is made up of strategists, storytellers, and experienced creators. From market research to brand campaigns to recruitment to fundraising, the agency exists to empower clients, amplify brands, and help institutions find a strategic way forward. You can learn more about their work in the world by heading on over to MindPower Inc. That's M-I-N-D-P-O-W-E-R-I-N-C dot com. And be sure to tell the crew that Jamie sent you their way. So what kind of advice do you give to leadership teams for having that consistency? If you're working with an organization that maybe has a president and eight or 10 vice presidents, how do you align those people around a single frame? That's a great question. Um, A lot of conversation. So first, up front, we do spend one of the things that we require if we are going to do this type of work is actually, you know, reviewing a lot of the things that already exist within the organization for how they naturally communicate. What are the words they're using? um, What is showing up consistently? And then when we engage with the leadership team, helping them understand this premise. I mean, this isn't necessarily something that you learn in business school as you're, you know, coming up as a leader, but helping them understand how language works um, and the importance of being able to pick language and make deliberate decisions and the importance of sticking with it. So we actually will share with them, you know, here's different types of language that we can use, what resonates most with you. And then how do we, once we make a decision around what's the story we want to tell, what's the language we want to use, how do we equip them to make sure that they can be consistent in how they deliver it, but also make it their own, right? This this is not an exercise in creating a script for leaders. This is an exercise in equipping them to be more effective in how they're communicating, not just within their own part of the organization, but across as a team. One of the things that I talk about when I'm talking to leadership teams is not what are we trying to convey? What information are we trying to convey? What do we want people to know when they read this? But also, what do we want them to feel? And I feel like that what do we want them to feel piece is forgotten really easily. Is storytelling a tactic or a a tool that can help achieve that feeling that we're desiring our audiences to have? Yes. Absolutely. There is definitely a part of when we think about communicating inside organizations, I think so often um, it's a first and foremost, we want to make sure we're communicating the facts. Right. And we want people to understand the rational part of whatever it is we're trying to convey. But to your point, how do we also get some sort of connection emotionally so people not only understand the rational um, of why the change is happening, but also that they feel compelled to, to act or do whatever it is le- leaders are hoping that they'll do through making those sorts of connections. And that's where the storytelling piece and how we maybe talk about how a student, we can use a student as an example of, of a success story, right? When you put a face and humanize any part of any story, it's more compelling for people. It's more relational to be able to have that human side of a story. It's challenging, certainly. I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have inside organizational storytelling today when we think about strategic narratives is so often it really is about you know, this is the strategy and this is the business and this is the direction we need to go. But how we make that compelling for people who are at every level of the organization across geographies and cultures is something that I think a lot of leaders, um, you know, struggle with, but can do really effectively in how we think about how might we 
fold the customer in or the student in or sustainability into the to the conversation to make it more compelling for people and more real and relatable. You used the word narrative, and that's something we talked about a little bit um, in the introduction to this podcast. The term narrative, I have had faculty, for example, throw back at me as meaning spin. Mm-hmm. How do you how would you respond to someone who said, well, you're just trying to spin what this story is? Yeah. And spin, of course, has such a negative connotation that we go into these conversations when we think about narratives and stories. We all have the opportunity to be able to shape the story we want to tell. One of the things that we'll say a lot and is something that anchors and me and is foundational to the work that I do is we say everything happens inside an organization because of or within a conversation. And as leaders, one of their primary responsibilities is to think about what are the conversations we want to create? What are the conversations that as an organization we need to always be having? And we can think about, you could probably rattle off the top of your head, the conversations that organizations have. There's conversations about corporate impact. There's conversations about strategy. There's conversations about financial fitness. There's all sorts of conversations we can create. One of the things that we talk a lot with leaders about is how are you shaping that? How are you being more thoughtful and strategic and how you're creating the right conversations? And so I equate you know, this comment around, well, that's just spin when we think about narratives. I actually think it's being, I would never advocate for spin. Um, spin to me actually implies it's there's something that's not true or we're, or we're lying or there's some sort of something we're masking. Um, I would never go into an organization. We are of, about tra- being tra- as pra- transparent as, as possible if the timing is right and, and if that makes sense for the situation. We work with a lot of organizations that are publicly traded, so we have some obligations where we can't. But when I hear spin, I automatically have a frame of we're not telling the truth or lying. And so when I think about narratives, it's not about telling the truth. It's about shaping the meaning for people so it's more compelling in how they hear it and understand it. Mm, I love that. I love that idea. And how does tone play into this? Tone is always part of the conversation. One of the first things we'll do is we create narratives or tell stories inside organizations is we always have an ear for tone. And and obviously language plays a really important part. Um, the cadence of how you tell a story. And so we will have a deliberate conversation around what is, how are we, to back to your point, how are we trying to make people feel? How, what is it that we want them to believe? And so as we think about what the leaders are telling us, you know, we might say, okay, we need to have an optimistic tone or we need to be, you know, empathetic in this moment. And so actually asking the question, because I think so often people say, oh, the tone's off here. And they have a hard time really figuring out, oh, maybe it's too direct. Maybe that language isn't resonating. But if you make those decisions before you put pen to paper or before you go into the big meeting to say, like, what is really the tone I'm trying to strike here? Whatever your answer is, is going to be helpful in informing the decisions you make around word choice, how you show up, and all sorts of other things. So tone is obviously a really important part. Um, And I find people don't think about tone until they realize it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, yes. you know, you know, when tone is wrong, but it's hard to say, like, it's it's really easy to point when it's wrong. But when you get it right, you also know it, too. But a lot of people don't think about the tone beforehand. At least that's in my experience. So when you're working with a leader who maybe has no experience in communications field um, or maybe they aren't as comfortable with the process that you're talking about, where you're t- being really deliberate with how you're approaching crafting a narrative, crafting a story. How do you approach that with someone who's just 
Like, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't know why this is important. Yeah. I was just going to say it, it, there's, it depends, right? There might be some leaders who say like, I don't, I don't get it. And I don't understand why it's important, but they're willing to listen and learn. Those are a lot easier than the ones who are like, I've been doing this my whole career and I've been successful and it's got me this far. So we're going to keep trucking along. Um, data is important, right? So I think the importance of helping leaders understand that there is research and data around organizations that have high levels of what we call strategic clarity, mm. uh, make better decisions faster, have more productive workforces, have higher levels of engagement, which as we know in the environment that we all live within right now, with people leaving organizations and things of that nature, people's ears, leaders' ears will perk up when we say, look, you know, at the end of the day, having greater strategic clarity and people really understanding the why and where we're headed and the role they play in helping us get there. And here's how you can do that effectively. And we've done it in other organization that tends to help them shift when we can show them some data and, and point to founded research around that. I've been doing this for 15 years. Early in my career, it was always an uphill battle, but it's really shifted, especially I think coming out of the pandemic. Leaders really understand the value of internal communication um, and, and how important it is and really and that connection that it has to driving engagement inside organizations. I think that the shift in the number of higher ed CMOs who report directly to the president and sit on the cabinet since the pandemic really highlights that. Because suddenly, I know when, when the pandemic hit and I was at um, a different institution than I'm at today, everybody sort of looked to me like, hey, Jamie, we need to tell people stuff. <laughs> it was That was echoed at you know all 4,000 institutions of higher ed around the country. And suddenly the strategic importance of internal communications rose to the forefront, I think. And that led to the elevation of our, our roles at a lot of institutions. Um, so I think there's definitely, definitely underrated value for internal communication. Talk about a silver lining, right? The pandemic right. and its ability to really give CMOs and communication functions the spotlight and the the teams that did really well in that in that really crippling time for a lot of organizations where they were shifting to virtual and um, so much uncertainty. There has been so much as I think about my clients, um, what a what a great silver lining to have to look back on to say, wow, now the organization really values us that much more. They know what we can do. We were able to shine, um, which I love. Yeah, that was it was a fantastic. I hate to say this, but it was a fantastic moment for us to show mm -hmm. what we can do. And I think I think back. This is I shouldn't probably confess this, but this is the name of the podcast is Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO. Let's hear but it. When I the first day after we sent everybody home and many of us executives were still coming into the office, I was like skipping to my car. I was so excited to be able to get in a room and hash out what we want to tell people and what are we going to do and how are we going to convey it to people. And um, I had um, been in that role for five years and had built a lot of credibility and trust. And so people were willing to listen to me about, we need to think about how we want people to feel. And it was such an exciting time, which sounds terrible because it was also a really terrible sure. time. Yeah. But that idea of being able to play a role in helping your organization get through a challenging time was really, really rewarding. And I'm sure I'm not the only higher ed CMO that feels that way. Does, yeah, that, I, does that kind of motivate you in the work that you do? It does. I think 
to a certain extent, it also validates the importance of the role that any person inside an organization plays in helping communicate to a large swath of people and and to create meaning and to have that platform to connect. Um, But 100%, I mean, I remember our firm in particular had really never been busier. Um, You know, that's kind of the the nature of the work that we do, that when organizations are in down times, they they tend to turn to us for help and being able to communicate things. Um, And so I find myself in a situation, uh, obviously COVID was an extreme, but, you know, being able to to be able to help the organization and create clarity in moments that have really high levels of uncertainty and this really sense of anxiety that is challenging. But to, to have leaders listening and really taking heed on the advice and applying it and seeing some of the great work that really could be done and showcased, despite how dark it was in our world at that yeah. moment, um, letting letting some of that rise to the top. And I think that's something that I will certainly remember um, for a long time, because even the stories when I talk to my colleagues who are CCOs inside organizations and, and what have you, um, just really was a, despite everything that was happening in the world, was a shining moment for the profession. Yeah, it absolutely was. Absolutely was. And a lot of public health organizations, those communicators were really, you know, so have a cliche, doing the Lord's work. I mean, getting, convincing people to mask up, convincing people to social distance, um, to get their vaccinations, all of that is a very nuanced way of driving behavior. And I think this whole conversation that we're having around narrative and storytelling, I think fits into the most effective of those campaigns. I I agree. I mean, you can, as a case study, to look at, um, you know, going beyond an organization, but how do you actually get the masses to, to do those things, right? We, we hear things, you know, we talk about sticky messages, right? And so like flattening the curve and, and what are all the ways in which we can have short and easy things that we can say to people to get them to call to action, to do things, to save their life and protect their neighbors and, and all of those things. Um, there's so many really great examples. I'm sure there's plenty of, you know, what not to do examples, <laughs> but, but as you think about, you know, I'm, I'm someone who catalogs those sorts of things and files them away as things to reflect on and as inspiration when I'm working inside other organizations on different campaigns and things. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really great example to your point uh, of, of things that work well, and I'm sure other things that perhaps didn't. So in your practice, you work with a lot of different clients. And so I'm curious about what advice you might have for Shifting gears. So uh, you must shift gears 15 times a day. You're working with this client, then this client, working on this project. And higher ed CMOs are often doing things like I'm managing a brand platform, then I'm going over here and dealing with a crisis situation, or I'm having to craft a narrative about this or that. How do you shift gears as you move between different tasks in your day? That's a good question. Um, I think I've been doing it for so long. So let me think about the mechanics of that a little bit. So some of it is having an awareness around the work I like to do. So there is, I think, for most people, you probably, if you think about the variety of things you do out of the out of the day, you probably can say, you know what, I really love when I can be creative and when I write. And so there may be some tasks that you have throughout your day that you really are like, you know what, I should probably spend 30 minutes on this. But then an hour and a half later, you're still doing it because you love it. And that's where you want to spend your energy and your time. And I get that. So I think some of it is first understanding where where you get your energy from, but also what depletes your energy. 
And I think the things that are hardest and the things that you don't like most, I always try and front load those in in the earlier part of the day, because as you get later in the day, whether you're an early person or a night person or what have you, um, just the level of attention that you can put on things gets smaller as the day goes on. So one, so I think the first thing is understanding where you get your energy and where you don't and figuring out if there's a way to shape your day to be able to organize it as such that you can pull those kind of more strategic things that are harder forward, do that. But I also think the sh- the pivoting can be really hard. I mean, I think as I think about any advice I might give someone to do that is if it is something that's of challenge to you, how can you build in? Sometimes we don't have the luxury of any time because we're on the fly and we're on the phone and there's a crisis. Um, you know, even if it's 30 seconds to take some deep breaths, um, even if it's, you know, if you have your to-do list or your tracking list, if you require a quick shift and you're mid-thought, there are some people that have a really hard time, like, where are you tracking that thought so you don't lose it and being really deliberate in your process around how you manage those sorts of things. I think just having a heightened awareness around some of that and a process to support it to allow you to shift faster is helpful. But it, I think a lot of it does come with experience. I, I at least notice it. I work with there's a lot of folks at our firm that are, you know, kind of fresh out of college and they're the first time they're in a situation where they're literally operating in fifth gear the whole day. And so how do you navigate and shift between some of it is time management, some of it is knowing where your energy is, some of it is being really deliberate in how you are observing those shifts and what isn't working. Is it because you can't get out of the last one or you don't get out of it effectively? There's probably some smaller micro behaviors that could be really helpful for people, but those are just a few that I think about. You mentioned that you work with a lot of people who are early career, recent college graduates. How do you approach mentoring them around storytelling and narrative building? A lot of it is kind of helping them understand we have our own proprietary research around some of this. And it is a whole different way of thinking and how you write. Um, For people who have even gone to school for some sort of communications degree or marketing degree, being a storyteller and someone who develops narratives is a coachable skill. Uh, Absolutely. And so I think helping them understand, I talked earlier about kind of the different elements of the narrative arc. So there's some art and science to storytelling. So at the very least, we can help impart some of the science, right? What's the theory behind it? How does it work? And we have a framework and a question inventory that I use with my clients that I will ask a bunch of questions so that we can get what we need to actually create a narrative. So I think the more they can understand the science and then having the tools to apply the art, and that comes with time. I think with anything, you know, writing and and understanding how to pen something in a particular voice or tone or brand for an organization um, is something that certainly comes with some experience, but can be learned quickly. The more the more you write stories, the better you get, like anything, more reps are better. So for people who join my team who are early career, I have them writing as much as possible. I will give mm. them examples of narratives that aren't done well, and I'll say, rewrite this, right? Mm. So as many reps as possible, and they don't always like it because they're like, well, I want to work on the client work that's real. like the And I'm like, that's great, but Let's get some reps in and practice that and helping them kind of dissect the key parts of it and and what worked well and what didn't work well and how how they might evolve their writing. I have a good friend who's a novelist whose publishing company, he created his own small publishing company, is called One Million Words. And he talks about how um, in order to be good at something, you have to practice for 10,000 hours. And that works out to be about a million words before you can even write something that's great. You have to write a million 
not great words um, to get to that point. So I love the idea of practicing, kind of having the training wheels on or the guardrails on to kind of help your mentees or your um, entry level kind of gain that skill and experience. Do you give them sort of a formula for what you're looking for when you give them this guidance? Yeah, we do. We have a formula for it and we have, um, like I mentioned, like a question inventory that helps. Uh, but to go back to your point around the this idea of 10,000 hours, um, it's about deliberate practice. So we can all do the 10,000 hours, but if we're practicing the 10,000 hours wrong, um, right. it's not going to lead to the right outcome. Right. So some of it is making sure that they're practicing the right things. And so there's a part of a, of a, a narrative that has what we call a strategic message in it. And it's kind of the core of the narrative, which ultimately articulates for the project or the function or the team or whatever it might be, kind of the mission, the vision, and the strategy for the organization. Um, we spend a lot of time getting that right because we often find that that's what organizations get so wrong. Not necessarily mm -hmm. the mission and the vision. Every organization has that. But what they don't do a great job of doing is being able to articulate this, the strategic direction of the organization. So mission, why we exist, vision, where we hope to go. But then there's not a lot of connecting the dots to say, and here's how we're going to get there. So a lot of what we tend to focus on, and everybody's different. There might be some people who are great at doing this strategic message piece of it, and some people who perhaps may not have, may not be as concise, or it may not be as sticky and compelling. Um, so I think what it really comes down to is making sure that you're getting the reps and practicing, but not necessarily the stuff that you're already good at. And that's our tendency as humans. We like to practice the stuff that we're good at. Nobody likes to practice the stuff that they're not good at. It doesn't feel good. Um, so really making sure that the reps are getting feedback. So it's about mm. making sure that not only are you practicing, but how are you getting that feedback? How are we making sure that we're connecting to say, what was good? What would you do differently? What should you dial up? What should you dial down? Um, and really getting those, the, the practice I think is really important, but practicing with feedback, mm. not just practice for practice sake. Hey all Zach here from Enrollify. We founded Enrollify with an ambitious goal, to be a professional advocate for marketers and admissions professionals throughout their entire career inside and around higher education. We started by launching a podcast, and then a newsletter, and then a review site for higher ed vendors, and then an e-course, and then more podcasts, and then a video series, and then a master course, and eventually a full-fledged resource hub. What united these educational resources was a simple mission, to help higher ed marketers and admissions professionals optimize the resources that they do have to generate the results that they need. While great content is and always will be at the heart of what makes Enrollify, well, Enrollify, we realize that if we're serious about accompanying folks like you throughout your entire professional journey, we've got to do more than just make great content. And that's when the idea of Enrollify Jobs was born a site where you can browse, favorite, and follow job postings at universities, agencies, and edtech companies alike. So how is Enrollify Jobs different from other job boards? Well, glad you asked. First and foremost, listings are exclusively for admissions and marketing jobs available in and around higher ed. You can expect to find job titles like Director of Marketing, Admissions Counselor, VP of Enrollment Management, and you can expect to find jobs like Product Marketing Manager, CMO, Customer Success Manager at a higher ed marketing agency or ed tech company. Number two, every job posting has a posted salary or salary range. You can say goodbye to guesswork and hello to transparency. We'll say it again, every job listing has a posted salary or salary range. 
Woo! And finally, you'll have the ability to sign up to receive notifications around specific job titles, roles, and employers. We make it really easy to be notified when an employer you follow posts a new job or when a new job with a title that you follow is posted. So whether you're actively searching for your next gig or simply want to be notified of cool opportunities that future you might want to pursue, head on over to enrollify.org forward slash jobs and create your free job seeker account. Again, that's enrollify.org forward slash jobs. I think that's such an important point. When I talk about mentoring early career professionals, I talk a lot about you can't really sugarcoat feedback you have to give really honest feedback. This doesn't mean you have to be you know, mean about it or anything, but to give feedback that points out, yes, this was the, this is the right direction. This, this is why this isn't. And having that sort of why it's not, sort of tying back to the beginning of this conversation, there's now a narrative around um, the work that you're doing. Yes, I think that's an important point. Being able to give feedback, and that is something that a lot of people aren't great at. And in fact, avoid whether it's because they don't they don't want to be confrontational or they don't want to have the direct feedback. But a lot of the leaders I work with, when they'll say to me, gosh, this person just keeps doing this over and over again, and I wish they would stop. And I said, well, did you give them the feedback? Did you tell them, <laughs> did you tell them to stop? And they'll say, well, I haven't really had that conversation. And it's like, well, be, well why? Well, I, you know, I don't want to hurt their feelings. And it's like, well, if you frame it in the context of I'm doing this to make you better, yeah. and that is my job as your leader to elevate you and make sure you're you're getting better. And it's so interesting to see that kind of flip switch, if you will, for some leaders to say like, oh, you're right. Um, mm. And you know, you don't see that with the more senior leaders, but for early leaders who are really trying to grow talent and build a team, you have to give that feedback and it has to be a natural part of the culture of the team. I think the greatest irony of my career has been that the earlier in my career I was, the less receptive to feedback I was. Like every year that goes by, I crave more and more feedback to hone my skills, hone my talents, and you know, make sure I'm getting better and better at what I do. But earlier in my career, I was very defensive. Like, are you saying I don't know what I'm doing? I didn't know what I was doing. Like, that was <laughs> that was a fact. And I could benefit so much from people if I had listened um, to that feedback. And if that's something that I have talked about with my team in the past is this idea of feedback strengthens, strengthens you. And Giving feedback is a part because sometimes people just say, I don't like this or, uh, you know, whatever that vague feedback, but um, receiving feedback is, I think, something that we don't talk enough about being receptive yeah. to it, hearing it, taking it on board. I couldn't agree more. I, I And I even observe that in, you know, people that I work with as we think about our firm and cultivating talent. I think um, the more senior you get in your career, the more you do, and maybe this is a generalization, but you and I are maybe sharing this common thread, which is that's the only way you get better is feedback. And I ask for feedback for my clients, you know, not all the time, but I'm sure you can remember times where I said, like, give me some feedback. How's it going? Like, what should we do more of or less of? Um, because we really, you know, even though we're in client services and professional services, you can apply that lens just in your day to day, in your craft with whatever you're doing. Um, you know, always having that, that growth mindset. Yeah. And I talk about, you know, defensiveness is not, does not serve you. It doesn't help you be better at what you do. And it doesn't help you be receptive to the kind of uh, commentary that might make you a better professional, make your writing stronger, make your approaches to things better. I just think, you know, if we can get rid of defensiveness and listen, 
you know, somebody's just being mean and nasty. You don't even have to get defensive because you know that's about them and not about you. But if they're giving you constructive feedback on your writing or something else that you've worked on, then you can feel like, okay, there's something in this that I can take on board that will make me better for the next time I tackle this. Absolutely. I think there's two dimensions to that. One is how the person hears it and understands it and may interpret it as personal, right? I'm doing something wrong. This is about me. But there are, in fact, lots of leaders who aren't very good at giving feedback. (laughs) Um, It really does, to your point, it does really require, um, you know, there's some things that leaders do really well and how they give how they give feedback that I've observed um, some admired leaders that we really you know have taken some behaviors away from and how they do that in exceptional and masterful ways that people really hear it and understand it and then know what to do with it um, but there are a lot of leaders who think they give feedback and have thought they've been really clear but when in fact it's actually not been very good so I mm. think that's why feedback gets a really bad rap because there's you know like communication, there's a receiver and there's somebody who's giving it and it, it takes it takes someone who's open to it, but also someone who can deliver it in a way that someone can hear it and make meaning from it and take action on it. Are there ways that leaders can incorporate the idea of receiving feedback into the process of creating a narrative? Like, are there ways that people can ask for, tell me how this made you feel or tell me what your response to this is? Are there mechanisms that can be used to kind of get that kind of feedback cycle? We 100% build that into our process. Um, I think also because we're coming into an organization as outsiders lots of time, and as much as we can gather data and review documents and be in interviews and ask the right questions, the intent is we really need it to land with the audience and be compelling. And so we will build in message testing along the way. Mm-hmm. And so that before we even say like, okay, this is final, we will have incorporated very a variety of voices from across the organization at a variety of levels, not just at the level of leadership, to ensure that it's what we're conveying is clear and especially for organizations with different cultures and different countries, um, it's really important that you get that right and you can create a universal narrative, but then that's something that can be translated depending on where you are in the organization um, and and what's what's most meaningful in the story or in the narrative to that part of the organization. So we build that into our process automatically to make sure that we're accounting for the different perspectives and, and the diverse audiences that we need to make sure are this is resonating with in a higher ed organization what would a process like that look like do you think so if we were in a higher ed organization and i would say we would likely we would we always like to start with the leadership team um and what the ideal setting is creating a conversation across that group to really allow us to share our perspective and how effective message development and narrative development looks and works and sharing some examples, but also creating a conversation with them. Because at the end of the day, it needs to be their story. It's not our story. And so though we're helping them craft that, it is so important that we have their voice reflected and they feel after the process is over that it's theirs and they can make it their own and they can own it and carry the flag forward with it. So it often includes you know, reviewing background materials, coming to a conversation with the leadership team where we actually can put forward to say, here's the story we actually think you're telling right now and helping them understand that. And and based on what we know about the university and the direction you're headed and what's most important, here's the story we actually think you ought to be telling. And we'll actually have kind of a side-by-side view 
Um, and we're, and it's iterative, right? It's over a couple of sessions that we'll do it and creating the conversation. We expand that conversation over time, um, to give them time to reflect for them, for us to create drafts and things that they can react to and validate, um, and the message testing and so on and so forth. So from beginning to end, the process, you know, ideally could work as quickly as four weeks, but ultimately usually extends farther on because as we go, what we tend to see is leaders who are like, you know what, I really want to make sure that, you know, academic affairs see this because we're talking about something that's really important to what they do. And so let's bring them into it. And you start to see this when we start out, leaders might be like a little bit defensive and like, oh, do we really need this? And then we we're going through the process and it's really cool to see them lean in, like physically lean in and be like, well, we really need to like make sure these people are represented. And have we really accounted for this view as we think about institutional advancement or whatever the case may be? So it's not too dissimilar from how we would run it inside a corporate organization than how we would do it inside a higher ed organization. So Katie says that it, it usually could be done in four weeks, but it tends to extend. What she's not confessing is that it's because it's so addictive to work with Katie. Um, <laughs> she's such a pleasure to work with. And I, I've always enjoyed, like, you're the calmest person in the room. And you just have a great way of kind of taking that emotion out of the conversation so that we can have a more um, productive engagement, I think. That is such a nice compliment. Thank you. You're sweet to say that. I'm actually like a duck. I'm kind of like in my head <laughs> paddling really fast underwater, um, just smooth across the water. But thank you for saying that. You are lovely to work with. I'm, I've just definitely a bright spot in the past year to have had the opportunity to work with you. Well, thank you. Um, are there any resources out there for folks who are interested in exploring this topic further? Do you have any workshops on the horizon for 2023? We are, so uh, earlier in the session, you had mentioned the seminar that we have just done around uh, designing compelling messages and narratives. Um, we are in the process of putting together our seminar series for 2023, um, and we hope to have that uh, ready to publish. I encourage anyone who would like to learn more to follow CRA Admired Leadership on LinkedIn. We post all sorts of things. Um, please feel free to follow me and we can certainly connect. Lots of times though we do the seminars, what we often find is organizations will wanna customize things specifically for their teams or for their university or organization. But we do do the seminar series because believe me, there are plenty of people out there who may not work for an institution or individual contributor and really just want to be able to invest in their own development in all sorts of ways. So we have seminars on this and a variety of other topics. Those would probably be the best resources that I could offer, but there are plenty of resources out there that are around storytelling and narratives. Um, and we mentioned one at the top and so would be happy to share some of those if anyone would be interested. Where can people find you? Are you on LinkedIn, Twitter? I am. I'm not on Twitter, but I am on LinkedIn as Katie Angstad. But please reach out if you have any questions. And I always love this. As you can tell, I love talking about this stuff. So when you asked me, I was thrilled to, to be able to do it. Well, thank you so much, Katie. And listeners, you can always reach out to me on Twitter at Jamie, J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to talk. My DMs are open. And as always, please use the hashtag HigherEdCMO to continue this conversation online. I would love to get your thoughts on crafting narratives, on working on internal communications, on how your role has changed since COVID. Any thoughts that you have? So have a fantastic rest of your day. 
and let's go bust some silos. Hey y'all, Zach here from Enrollify. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO with Jamie Hunt. If you like this episode, do us a huge favor and hit that follow and subscribe button below. Furthermore, if you've got just two minutes to spare, we would greatly appreciate you leaving a rating and a review of this show on Apple Podcasts. Our podcast network is growing by the month, and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. But Enrollify is far more than just a podcast network. Enrollify is where higher ed comes to learn new marketing skills, discover new products and services, and find their next job. We're a growing learning community of 4,000 members, and we'd love to welcome you into the fold. You can access our free blog articles, newsletters, e-courses, and more, or purchase our master course on how to market a university with Terry Flannery at enrollify.org. We look forward to meeting you soon and welcoming you into the community. Again, you can subscribe for free at enrollify.org.